Welcome to Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, today I'm talking to Professor John Marsden. Um, uh, John, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, Rob, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, John is here to talk about uh, his article, um, Acute Impact of Self-Guided Mental Imagery on Craving in Cocaine Use Disorder, colon, a Mixed Methods Analysis of a Randomised Controlled Trial. Um, so, in order to kind of break this down a little bit more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was about using mental imagery uh, to address craving for cocaine. Now, at the beginning, you say that there there are no, or there are few treatments for cocaine use disorder, and that CBT has a kind of at best a marginal uh, use. So just to give some context, why, why are there so few treatments for for cocaine use? Yes, it has not been without trying. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a pretty prevalent and very um, persistent disorder. Um, and certainly there's been a, a huge amount of investment from NIDA and NIH in the US, in particular, um, with us very much as a, a marginal contributor, really, to the search for effective treatments. Um, I can't say how many medications have been repurposed um, and trialled, um, mm. but it must be a couple of dozen um, over as many years, if not longer. It seems like every every other year or something there's naloxone or buprenorphine which is being trialled for cocaine use disorder. It's really chippy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a lot of us look um, with great envy at the pharmacotherapy toolkit to treat, for example, nicotine, mm. you know, as, as um, we know, partnered with a behavioural um, intervention there's usually something that will work for almost all people who wish to trial out the right package. And, I mean, without getting into a long reflection on the, the business of trials, mm. there's, of course, little signals from um, pilot feasibility trials where compound X does appear to work. But when you, when you subject that to the, you know, the gold standard design where you've got a placebo control then the effect sizes just seem to fly away. Um, so, we, But the interesting thing, I mean, without, without going too far down the, a different path today, um, I used to look, and then for a while I've looked away, and with a sense of being a bit dispirited and you know, not nihilistic, but thinking, oh, OK, maybe we're not going to get... We're not going to get a vaccine, we're probably not going to get an antidepressant, we're not going to get um, an agonist, perhaps... But suddenly, this is the great art of systematic review, suddenly you kind of see or you hear about a new systematic review that has pulled together small studies, um, of which there have been many, and you start to then get knowledge statements, which is why we do systematic reviews. And that's set the hair running again recently. So it looks as if uh, there might well be optimism um, for... Perhaps some prescription stimulants uh, and possibly some novel antidepressants and maybe some other things. So I think it's still live <laughs> and, you know, and it's still needed. I mean, there was, a, there was an article quite recently showing a tripling of the deaths from methamphetamine in the, in the US. Um, and cocaine, uh, particularly the smokable form, crack cocaine, which we, we study with our patient collaborators, um, is a real vexed problem in this country here. We, we, we don't offer much to, to people that present with fairly 
aggressive, sustained crack dependence. Um, and unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of people out of treatment who presumably perceive that there's nothing for them, yeah. um, so therefore they, they don't show. But many people with crack cocaine problems also struggle to engage and they drop out early or earlier than they would like, mm. certainly we would like. Um, so we've got to do better. Um, the, the, the psychological psychosocial interventions that's sort of the other side of the coin if you like um, it's disappointing as well there is a small I think clinically important but it's small uh, an effect size signal for CBT and certain forms variants of behavioural reinforcement um, I, I'm interested in CBT because for me it gets into the heart of the experience of addiction uh, but certainly continuously management looks uh, for as long as it uh, is people are exposed to it? Looks like it works well, and CBT is 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 weak but effective, um, and again could do better. And finally, I think you know the the idea that we might be able to sandwich together medications with yeah. psychosocial is, of course, you know the bread and butter of how we think about addiction. Really, so so your your study kind of comes off the back of some of those. Uh, Kind of builds on uh, some of those psychosocial interventions, and you focus in on craving, which is which is is more central in in cocaine and crack cocaine uh, addiction than it is in in say other other addictions. Um, and you used uh, mental imaging to try and address th- those cravings. Can you say a little bit about you know the practice of what you did? You you got people in and you got them to crave. How did you do that, and how did you then try try to address that? Certainly, maybe I could just say at the outset very briefly that. The rationale from, for doing that came from our knowledge and our, also our practice of working with patients with other psychological, psychiatric disorders, where mental imagery um, can often characterise the problem and also provide clues to, to, to resolving it. So post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, yeah. is, you, is often... Um, you know, disabling fear from a life-threatening exposure is often triggered by images yeah. um, and treated by manipulating those. So my group started to think, well, disabling fear for PTSD, that's the therapeutic target in a way. The prime target really for crack cocaine is, is craving. I mean, yes, it's abstinence. That's what most people want, or at least attenuation. But actually, the upstream experience of feeling craving sets in motion, you know, protracted drug use, which is very difficult to disengage from. So we thought we might be able to apply some of the techniques that have been uh, successfully developed for other areas to our area. Um, And we, I suppose, follow a very noble line of experimental psychological um, therapeutics. Um, And quite appropriately, that lineage of research has tried to be very standardised. So participants receive the same independent variable, if you like, the same exposures. Um, And we actually took a little different approach. Um, There is a an, an interest in personalised treatment, personalised medicine. And I think it is accented very much by cocaine use because people are just so different. Mm. Their, ex- 
experiences, their triggers, their responses are so idiosyncratic that we felt that we needed to be much more individual. So to cut a long story short, we collaborated with our patients and found the individual triggers that they were burdened by for craving experiences and almost brought those together in a, in a package so that when they came into the clinical laboratory, we weren't asking them to, to watch... Um, well, we did ask them to watch a standard film, which has been used very commonly. But in addition to that, we asked them to do a number of other things that were very individual. So we asked them to hold and think about objects that they brought in, paraphernalia and so forth. We asked them to think about recent experiences, read a description of their um, own words describing craving and, and really try to use that as a way of getting into their experience and provoke it. Mm. That was obviously the prime thing. We wanted to provoke craving. Like, um, like pain trials, they need to be painful. You know, they need to be active in, in promoting that thing so you can then learn how to address it. Absolutely. I mean, I have a, I have a tiresome habit when I'm teaching of saying everything in psychiatry and psychology is, is on a continuum where you've got um, approach at one end and avoid at the other. Mm. And it's possible that if someone's got, uh, say, a spider phobia mm. and you're not a biology teacher... You could probably avoid that. But if you are a biology <laughs> teacher, you've got to approach it for resolution. And, and so we, what was interesting was we did a number of studies before this one, actually, where we, we wanted to act appropriately, as you'd, as you'd hope and expect. Mm. And we, we, we evaluated the safety of, of provoking craving. Um, and certainly we were careful about that and... And we had no adverse events, if you like. We, you know, it would be quite reasonable for you to put to me today that you know we you could provoke craving, and someone could leave your mm. laboratory and go and obtain cocaine. Um, and our patients were certainly free to do that, if you like, but none reported doing so. So I, I think we, yeah, we, as with all psychological um, therapies, you do have to get the right emotional temperature in the room. Otherwise, you're just talking. Yeah. You know? So if you're trying to leverage change, we definitely wanted to get our patients experiencing craving. So, so once, they, once, they, um, once they were craving, um, you then kind of randomised them into four different um, potential remedies for that craving. And they were based... There was kind of negative and positive and past and future. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the bit that we, we aligned most obviously with the sort of strictures of experimental psychology was we wanted to have some clear conditions but we wanted to have our participants as in a way their own controls so what do you do I, mean, I suppose to take a step back for a second say a, if you imagine a person has a very strong intrusive and protracted dis, uh, craving experience for cocaine desperate to obtain it what should they do? Should they distract themselves? Uh, that might work. Um, you know, take a dog for a walk, run up and down the stairs, um, phone a friend. You know, I'm being slightly facetious, but what, you know, what should the response be? Um, because it, often it doesn't go away. Um, and you might self-talk, you might reassure, you might do a number of things. 
And one of the sort of questions addressed in this study, of course, was whether a mental imagery reaction or response as something that could be practiced as a skill mm. might work. And we didn't know which type. And so what we did first, we asked our patients... Well, well first of all, we didn't know whether our patients would necessarily be able to self-generate types of mental image. And I should say a mental image... Probably before, I, before we go any further, I should say what a mental image is. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we take them for granted. Yeah. You know, so they... I, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think one might say that a mental image is a sensory representation um, but without direct experience so it could be the if I said to you oh how about a pizza later when we finish this you might bring to mind the smell um, appearance texture and of course taste of your favourite, I, you I, I know which pizza you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, you're doing yeah. it right now, yeah. and and of course, I don't know whether you're. I'm actually seeing <laughs> my favourite pizza. So um, the thing about mental images is that there's there's a literature now that suggests that, for example, when we bring to mind a positive memory mm-hmm. and using very visual um, characteristics, it seems to cue more emotion, and when we think about the imaginal visual qualities of a very distressing image that's described verbally our mood goes down even further so it the images are connected with emotion so we first of all were interested to find out in the study that our patients really understood why we were doing this they got it because they don't generally describe mental images. If you're doing a clinical assessment, it's not the thing you generally hear people elicit readily. So we spent a bit of time socialising people to why this was important, and that wasn't difficult. But yes, what we did first of all is we said to each participant, can you think of four different types of mental image? Mm -hmm. Um, We'd like you to think about a time before you started to use cocaine. That was a very lovely time, a very positive experience. We didn't cue them any further. We left it as open as that. Um, So that was a past positive image. And people described something that, that, if one was to imagine it, almost always as being a vignette, a little, almost like a mini videotape. It was a, a place, a time... And almost always there were others there. there yeah. It was very, it was often convivial, and it was a family gathering, something like that. We also asked people um, to um, think about and describe the mental imagery associated with the worst time that's happened since they've been using cocaine. Mm-hmm. So that's a memory. So that's an event that's happened, and it's the worst of all times. We also ask people to think of two things that haven't happened. Mm-hmm. We ask them to think of a future time in which they recovered. Okay. So completely free of it. Almost the, the bookend of the yeah. time before. So the time after. Uh, and again, people often uh, elicited very positive, anticipated, hoped for time when they're back with family and living a, a life free of this particular dependence. And as you'd imagine, for the final 
um, image, we ask people to think of a disaster. So if cocaine got worse, what would that look like? So four different images, um, audio recorded, um, summarised, and then brought with us into the laboratory for the participant. And yes, our, we, so we provoke them with uh, triggers for craving, and we then randomly allocate them to bring one of those four to mind um, as a test of changes in craving which we've measured multiple across um, the, the, the uh, experiment. Yeah. Um, and we really didn't know which was going to be better. I mean, one might imagine that the positive images would be better, but we didn't know. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting uh, that you say that, because I think probably within uh, treatment services and sectors, uh, the drive for strength-based assessments and solution-focused therapies... Um, that kind of positivity makes makes some sense, but but when you take a step outside of those circles, there are there are still those kind of prevailing attitudes. You know, think of what you've lost, think of what this will do to your family. You know, focus on those negative things. How how when you think of all those negative things, can you carry on using drugs? And that's that's not what you found in in this, is it? No, you're absolutely right. Um, it would be it it would be completely understandable, but wrong to kind of dismiss why we did it, I think. Mm. And it, uh, in hindsight, you kind of, you know, you look at the results and think, oh, actually, there's, there was evidence for the positive um, images, the ones from the past and the hoped-for ones from the future. And they, they definitely emerged. I mean, we had a very small study, mm-hmm. very underpowered, um, very exploratory. But certainly, we felt some quite compelling descriptions when you look at the individual yeah. cases yeah. In, the, in which we report using this mixed methods design one stands out for me as I s- sit here talking to you today um, so a particular participant said well my future positive image is taking uh, my one of my um, sons or daughters I won't say which to for a day out mm. and he had an image of uh, his son or daughter having an ice cream and wearing a particular outfit and, and he brought that to mind randomly mm. and he said it was astonishing I, it, you, he said you really got under my skin with this procedure I felt, I felt a real gnawing desire I, could, I had images of cocaine in my mind I could smell it I could taste it I certainly wanted it and he said when I brought this image to mind and the protocol was to ask people to really think about it for a minute or so and experience all the different qualities he said it swept it up, swept the craving experience wow. away I, I think that was re- that I found that really really interesting with the mixed methods design of this um, that you know you're looking through these associations and you think okay that was kind of interesting that makes me think a little that's kind of interesting that makes me think, think a little I mean interesting not kind of interesting that's, yeah it's interesting and then you get to those qualitative descriptions of what they were thinking of, and it just made sense. It's like, yeah, because these positive ones, they make me feel positive, and these negative ones make me feel pretty bad, actually. They're kind of... And they're not even my memories. But I, I, I found it really, really um, illustrative, and those two sets of data, the qualitative and the quantitative, Thank uh, you. presented together, really made sense in this. We, I mean, with this was an opportunity to, mm. to, to cast the study in a, in a slightly different direction to how it was originated, how it, how it originated. 
And I'm, I mean, I don't come from a qualitative research background. Um, I've almost been a sort of a, a very positive consumer of qualitative research, but I have begun to get involved in it in the last uh, three or four years. And I think that, so mixed methods, so what I think of it uh, in terms of a trial, which is a randomised control trial, is the analysis of the, if you like, the clinical data with the, the qualitative. And I think we shone light in areas that otherwise would have been pretty masked by just using craving scales, which, which we, we, we used. So you're absolutely right. You get to see why, you, I think, why there was a change that otherwise would just be tabled or analysed in a model of something. And... Uh, I think they're becoming a really fascinating design and, cl- and sort of quite contemporary class of research where um, I'm probably attentionally biased now, so I, I see them everywhere, <laughs> but that's probably because I, I'm looking out for them or I notice when I see them. But I think I'm not suggesting we did it particularly well. I, I, we did our best. Um, it's for others to judge. But where they're done well, they really do synergize between what I think is, is a great combination of kind of quantitative science, but also this getting into the themes and being very open, as we try to here, um, to illustrations from people that might not fit what we thought were emerging patterns. I think that's the hunger that you have to have, that you, don't, you certainly don't go collecting... Uh, and analysing to suit your theory. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that would be really going down, I think, uh, uh, the wrong path. Um, but fortunately, we, some of the models that we, we brought were actually pretty much um, supported. Um, and certainly the qualitative, it accented the, the, the common use of social um, context for images. And what's great about that is that I, I now... I'm, interested in, in reinforcing when patients start to elicit social mental imagery because yeah. I know that that's from, from this study that's a good thing to do because we've shown it to be effective so, so just um, just for the, that kind of clarity your findings were that those, those future the positive imagery was more effective than the negative but in fact the negative could in, increase People's cravings? Yes, it, it did. I mean, we were very underpowered, so I wouldn't want to make yeah. definitive statements, but it certainly didn't suppress craving. Um, there was a sense that it might even have gone up a bit. Um, now, what, why would that be? I mean, that's an interesting reflection. Um, but it certainly looked as if, if we're thinking of, for example, com- you know, say you've got a thought that's persistent, and you, you'd rather be rid of it, we know, we know in psychology that if we try and push a thought away, it generally sort of comes back and stays a bit longer. <laughs> um, uh, so it's much better to manipulate it. You know, to, for, for example, if, I, if, I, if it occurred to me to believe that the earth is flat... You know, I might, I might, if I was also motivated, which of course is a bit of a paradox <laughs> in that instance, I might go away and see if I could produce some evidence to counter the thought. Yeah. So to, to checking in on the truth of thoughts is a, use, a useful strategy. But yeah, it really, it really did look as if this, the negative 
certainly the negative past and future would serve to not displace craving. And I suppose because but the content of both of those images were drug-based, it kept the focus there, whereas the, the, the ones before cocaine and the ones after it had the opportunity to actually be of different things. Yeah. And so there's an idea of literally shifting the content of what you're thinking about into a different domain. It's really interesting. I, I, I almost used that on the way here today when I was uh, late and underprepared. Um, I, I was thinking I was late and underprepared, and then I thought, no, because in this it said think positive things. So I, I tried to Im- imagine myself doing a podcast interview with you that was going successfully well. Um, I'm not sure how effective it was. I mean, it was an <laughs> N of one, but <laughs> I did think it was worth a go, certainly. Oh, that is absolutely... Well, that's a fantastic... That's a fantastic example of exactly what we are talking about. Because in a way, with PTSD, for example, um, sometimes we might use... We might encourage a, a patient to select some way of grounding their distressing emotions. They might, they might take an object out of their pocket or they might smell perfume or something to ground and, mm. and show that they are not in danger. They are actually safe and in the world, in a way to sort of counter. And that, in a sense, doesn't necessarily take a lot of cognitive manipulation. It sort of works in a way. Um, and we, we wanted to go a bit further and almost encourage people to to play those almost videotapes through and to focus on the meaning of them mm. and and that helped us align with a very important theory for us which is um, elaborated intrusion theory which was a guiding approach for us that we think has a very useful way of thinking about how the mind works in that there are often very fast arriving thoughts so out of nowhere, you suddenly have this very anxious um, thought that persisted a bit, which is, oh, it's going to go really badly, and I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't read his bloody paper, and, and he's going to sit there and ask me what I thought of it, and I'm going to say, oh, well, it was, it was in addiction, and... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be found out. I'm finally going to be found out. <laughs> but you process that, process that through by focusing on an image of yeah. the, the, the podcast as it's going now. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I, I, you yeah, know, I really appreciate the feedback. And I think, you know, we, we are also very, very aware that um, sometimes there's a lot of distress and that um, our patients can't attune into this space. So it's not for everyone. Um, there are people in the world who, who don't have a great mental imagery facility. Um, so in a sense, it's not for everyone by definition. But I think it's something that we can, we can put to patients as something they might want to try out. Yeah. And that, for me, is gold dust because it means that we can slot this into our toolkit. Yeah. And uh, we might not need to use it, uh, but if we're engaging with a patient and they might be saying, I just keep on thinking about um, who I've hurt. You know, those yeah. themes of guilt and shame sometimes that are commonly expressed, um, often not with much mental imagery, very affectively, um, we might think, okay, well, 
there's a possible way of working with that. It's it's fascinating research. Um, I'd like to ask you another question, which is which is related to this, but off on a slight tangent. In your role as editor in chief of Addiction uh, Journal, uh, you comment about the importance of uh, writing up trials that have uh, have stopped halfway, and that's that's what this is. It's a write up of a trial that stops halfway, and how about how important that is that, that that those data don't get lost. I mean, is that something that that is common um, and that needs to be addressed? Um, oh, it's a really important topic isn't it and there are increasing um, pressures quite correctly for all registered trials to be published Um, there's a movement that um, almost pursues research groups to ensure that this happens quite appropriately uh, because we've got to get everything out Uh, I've worked on a study that recruited even fewer patients than here and we converted the experience we had so that others would be able to learn as to ha- in that instance how much of a struggle the protocol was how, how hard it was for us to uh, encourage people to be interested to accept it um, so I think finding a way to convert any implemented study obviously if it's not implemented at all there's not much you can work with um, but using whatever approaches you can to get that finding out is just so important. Um, and I think probably with this, this is an example of, I might argue, a, a study in which it has ended in a way that perhaps is a little bit more than the sum of its parts if it had been completed as originally configured. Mm. And... Uh, I mean, that's a slightly revisionist history. Uh, oh, why not? <laughs> but why not? And I, so you know, you're absolutely right. We've, we, we, I, I think, you know, that I, I, can underst- I can understand that some researchers would think, oh, we haven't got enough resources now to, to get to our powered sample uh, and s- staff leave, etc. And it becomes, it inhabits in the file drawer. Yeah. But we've got to get the drawer open, um, and it helps everyone. Even if the you know we haven't found what we were looking for, you know what mm. we have found though is 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 important for science for sure. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor John Marsden, editor in chief at Addiction Journal. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>